Bam, bam, bidum, bam, bam, bidum, bam. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Why am I feeling this way? <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter five, Bingtown. And we start with Althea. Yeah. So Althea lets us know it has been 17 days since Kyle has told her to go to her room, essentially. <laughs> and she has stayed there for 17 days as well. Yes. Because there was... Uh, talk in the previous chapter with her about you know defying it because she's not one of the crew anymore and doing various things and there's still talk about in talk about that in this first couple paragraphs here you know there's you know first she railed against it and was mad and she was gonna defy everything and then childishly she vowed to endure the restriction he had put on her simply so she could complain of it to her father at the journey's end look what you made me do she said to herself and smiled minutely it was an old shout between her and Kefria, I guess, when they were kids, so it recalled that fondly. But she like goes back and forth of what would cause the most damage. What would what would me like staying here or going out and doing more chores and kind of defying his order? Right. And she can't seem to decide. What's interesting about this um back and forth with her is that at the end of our last chapter with her, where she had been talking, she had made the gallant claim that she would be staying in because she wouldn't, or she'd be following Kyle's order to go straight to her room because she wouldn't want to get the other people in trouble. Right. And now we see that she doesn't even mention what would happen to other people if she came out? She kind of is more worried about what would have the best effect to her father whenever she tells him about it later. So she settles on staying in and kind of sulking. She goes back and forth between rage and sulk. Mm -hmm. But also it's interesting to think of it through the lens of her wanting to say, look what you made me do. The example she gives. Okay, Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah. The example she gives from her childhood is whenever she would purposefully ruin things of Kefria's or something that they were fighting over uh, and then shout, look what you made me do, which is already on its own. Very bad and childish, selfish, you name it. But the fact that she is now at, what did we decide she is 19 something like that 18, she's 19. like 18 19 still doing that obsessively thinking of it right it's like okay maybe recognize that as you're not as mature as you think you are but we know she <laughs> won't <laughs> so she's kind of decided to stay in and goes through pretty much everything that she could do reads all of her books and scrolls again and eventually falls asleep taking a cat nap on the floor of her cabin next to the planks, which she hasn't done since she was a kid. But she dreams. She recalls in in this memory and thinking back right now, she's recalling when she did often take dreams or take naps as a child or slept on the floor of 
her father's stateroom or something like that. She would always have vivid dreams and kind of dismiss them afterwards or when she grew up as childhood fancies or, you know, just regular vivid dreams that you have as a kid. Right. But that night on the deck of her own stateroom, the color and detail of her childhood dreams came back to her. The dream was too vivid to dismiss as the product of her own mind. She dreamed of her great-grandma, a woman she had never known, but in her dream she knew Tally as well as she knew herself. So she's sleeping right up next to uh, the deck, touching the actual wood, sleeping, and gets imparted a dream of the first captain of the Vivacia, who commissioned Vivacia. Yes. Um, so first I wanted to ask, are her floorboards, do we know, are they the special wood wizard wood wizard wood yeah i am not sure if we ever get a full description i know we did for paragon i think of what was created out of wizard wood but at a certain point i don't think it matters i think like the wizard wood and the skill imbued or whatever it is right the dragonness of everything kind of (laughs) takes over the whole vessel as its body or as its form because often recent or soon up in this chapter and later on with Wintro, you know, they describe being with Vivacia and feeling so or sailors climbing all over the deck and anywhere that they are. So I think it doesn't even matter at this point if it is or not. Okay. No, I was uh, just wondering because I was thinking, is this kind of in her head or is this more real? Um, But either way, what she describes does feel very skill adjacent. This is reminiscent of when people say that they are walking in memories, I believe, in yeah, drowning the trading. Yes, whatever. in the um, old Rainwell oh Chronicles. Goodness. No, in the old blood. But I was trying to think of who the the Rainwild traders. I don't know yeah. why. The old uh, blood. Get, yeah. Yes, the. The old blood rainwild traders call it <laughs> drowning in the memories. And so I think it's also similar to that because we see how that affects Althea going forward. It is very similar, but also much more intentional because the drowning in the memories is like so many memories from all over the, around the cities. And this right. is one being Vivacia sharing these memories with Althea as far as we know, at least. That's my assumption. Oh, because it's the lives that have soaked into Vivacia. Right. It's her great-great-grandmother and then her great-grandfather. Or no, her great-grandmother and her grandfather. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Are the two dreams that, sh- that we get described in this chapter. So I, I figured it was just, these are the memories, these are the things that Vivacia can share. And I don't think it would happen with everybody. I think it would be somebody of the Vestrit blood. Interesting. Okay. Because I'm sure sailors have slept on the decks before. Well, right. But (laughs) that's fair enough, I guess. I don't know. I guess, are they having restful enough sleep and time enough to really dig into these dreams if they have them, you know? No, but I feel like in these books, they make a lot of mentions of superstitions of sailors. Right. So I feel like that would be kind of... An odd thing that would be talked about, even though they're used to live ships. I feel like that'd be Hmm. something like, hey, weird dream. Right. (laughs) It's a bad omen. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. 
I also, you said that you think that Vivacia herself is giving these specific memories to Althea to see. Possibly. I mean, she's not awakened yet. Right. So it's kind of hard to say, but it does seem as if Vivacia has some agency. Interesting. Like they're not necessarily like the phys- physical awakening or a capable mind to respond or anything, but like more a sleeping presence kind of mm. just like, Hey, here are some memories. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, guess, I could be, I could be wrong. I mean, it's yeah. just assumptions I'm making, but yeah, I guess I, I didn't see this. I think Althea believes that to be the case with 100% certainty. I think she thinks Vivacia is trying to send her messages and is purposely oh, picking yeah. these memories. I personally felt like this is just, like you said, Vivacia right now isn't fully awakened, so it felt more like she's peeking into Vivacia's dreams, and those dreams are based off of memories of other people. Yeah, it could be. Definitely could be. So I was, yeah, I, I just found it interesting that you, I had never even fully considered that maybe this was Vivacia actually being purposeful. <laughs> could be just Vivacia being purposeful, but not selecting the the specific memories for any reason, just kind of saying like, you're our stuff that I know. I mean, it could be like halfway between our, us two. Like I said, right. um, could be all the way on your side where it's just kind of the close connection between the two. And Althea is able to share in those memories that Althea right. po- or uh, Vivacia possesses. I don't know. Well, I also wonder, so why I said this is, um, skill-esque or like really adjacent to. Um, it reminds me a lot of when Fitz would be troubled by skill dreams because other people were reaching out to him. And this feels like the opposite where Althea is reaching so hard out to Vivacia for some sort of comfort that she is latching on to the stream of consciousness. Like that's my idea of what's going on. This is all Althea reaching out. I think there has to be some level of skill or. I mean, this is more of like the dragon magic. Right. And skill feels like a pale shadow of it, but a very closely related shadow of it. I guess I'm not trying to say that she is skilling or that she has skill. I'm trying to say that like, you know how <laughs> to talk to dragons, you have to have whatever it is to be able to understand them. Mm-hmm. There's like some sort of magic, whatever that is. I feel as though that Althea must be extremely strong in it or susceptible to it, whatever you want to believe. I'm sure all of the old traders are like it runs in the family kind of thing because right. Selden becomes a dragon singer later on for Tintaglia. So yeah, yeah, no. Malta obviously is able to hear Tintaglia. Right. I was an elderling. So I feel like it just runs strongly in the old traders because they have the live ships because they've been around them so long. I don't right. know. I, I just feel like it's kind of. No, it is. It, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know. And it feels like it's relatively rare that people are able to resist that or not hear dragons. You think it's rare? I feel like there were a lot of people who don't. They don't want to even listen to the people who can hear the dragons because they can't hear them and just think they're dumb animals. I didn't feel like there was a lot. I don't know, maybe closer to 50-50. I know there's scenes later on, like in the third book, when Tintaglia does come and like starts attacking the town kind of thing. Right. I, I feel like there are scenes where 
most people can hear Tintaglia, but that might just be me filling in details. Right. So we'll keep an eye on that. Definitely. But to me, this, like relating back to your skill conversation, is very similar to Fitz skill walking and occupying somebody's body during right. an actual event. Yeah. Which to me is very, you know, adjacent to dragons eating or absorbing the memories from past lives and kind of sharing that with the next generation kind of thing. So right, yeah. just kind of riding and becoming that person so fully that you can't quite distinguish yourself from them. And then when Althea wakes up, she's kind of jolted to find that she is Althea and not Tally Vestrit and knows when she wakes up that there are so many details and things that she didn't know before, like an extra um, sail fittings on both the fore and the aft of Vivacia that she had never seen rigged before or anything like that. Amelia could grasp the advantages of it and new details from Tally herself, captaining, things like that. She knows this is not a unique, or knows this is not an ordinary dream. Right. And it also feels very real. She also talks a little bit while she's in this dream of Tally Vestrit struggling through a storm where her first mate and next in line to first mate. I don't remember. It'd be first and second mate if that's what you're. Yeah, they go overboard basically is what has happened. A great sea had taken off the mast and the mate. Okay, yeah. So just one mate. Yeah, but also the mast. <laughs> yes. And so Tally Vestra is struggling through this and making calls and leading, and we get to see the little details of that. We also see that Althea is in awe of seeing her grandmother, who her great-grandmother, who she had only seen in portraits before, where she was done up like a, a lady, quote-unquote, and to see her in her element being a captain, she feels a sense of kind of envy that there was a time when women could do this, when they could make this their job and their role. And in waking up, it is just a sudden realization that, oh, I'm no longer Tally, I am Althea, but I'm going to keep this knowledge. And it sort of becomes addictive to find more knowledge Mm-hmm. Not just from her family members, but also feeling as though she's closer to Vivacia because they are sharing these dreams together. Yeah. Well, drowning in the memories. Yeah. She deliberately lays down uh, to sleep that night on Vivacia's deck, fully trusts Vivacia. And in Althea's words, you know, Vivacia honors that trust and rewarded her trust and is granted more dreams. Right. Which again, again, I think speaks to, I don't think this is a purposeful thing on Vivacia's end. I think this is a lot of Althea doing the work without knowing it and assuming because she does not understand what is happening, that this is a gift from Vivacia specifically for her, that this is, this could only happen because of how strong their bond is and that this is a clear message that Vivacia will only sail with her. And I think that's really interesting because I believe whenever Vivacia awakens, which I think is next chapter, Vivacia doesn't necessarily know Althea the way Althea expects her to. Right. I mean, obviously she knows who Althea is, but I think there's like a disconnect and Althea's a little shocked. 
she gets shocked at many things. Right. Yeah. It, it is a teenager becoming an adult and realizing they don't actually know all the things they thought they did. But so Althea lays down to sleep that night and is rewarded with a dream of her grandfather sailing up some specific uh, passage that no one else had been able to find because he never wrote it down. And so that knowledge, as Althea finds out, is kept in the ship and she knows when she wakes up that she could probably sail that right now and go back up and find those, you know, unique spices and, and trade goods and things like that. Right. And I think this also shows the amazingness of live ships and the yeah. value of them. She talks about how the reason nobody knew this secret path to find the special sap to trade for a good price is because like many sailors, her grandfather died before he was able to teach everything he knew to the person below him, which would be her father. And that this is a pretty regular thing where people who are at sea, who know lots of tips and tricks or just little trade routes that take you to something really good. Oftentimes they pass before they can ever pass on that knowledge. And so having this live ship able to store every single memory that is invaluable to mm -hmm. someone who wants to continue this trade as part of this family. Definitely. Be because like, like Althea says, she can now, she knows that she could take that trip right now. And that's something that would have been lost forever if her grandfather was not part of the live ship. She thinks she could take it. Right. right I don't know. I, <laughs> I think she personally could go but to command all the soldiers or sailors to do the right things right i, I don't, don't think she has enough <laughs> but she does know the route at yes, least yes she does so she says night after night she sprawled on the decks and even by day she did this and days passed she just was kind of losing herself in in these memories of vivacious and she says, at times, it seemed to Althea that she became the ship, aware of the small men who clambered up her masts, only as a great whale might be aware of the barnacles that clung upon it. There was so much more to the ship than the folk that worked her. Althea had no human words to express the fine differences she now sensed in wind and current. There was pleasure in working with a good steersman, and annoyance in the one who was always making minute and unnecessary adjustments, but it was a surface thing compared to what went on between the ship and the water. So I do want to say that I think this points to Althea's kind of greatest flaw, that Althea sees herself as kind of above others. And in this, in her putting herself as a ship and saying that a ship is so much more than the people on a ship, which is true in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but the way she's saying it is almost kind of diminishing the role that they have at all. Right. I think she's not accepting the fact that actually the people also do a lot for a ship. They make it run. They make sure that it's going the right way. There's that's yeah. yeah. And that, that mirrors uh, Brashen's thoughts and concerns at the end of this chapter as yes. well of how, I mean, we'll get there eventually, but how Efren Vestret really, really valued and appreciated the sailors. Yes. And how he's kind of scared now that a new person is taking over, how Althea, well, in his mind, Althea is going to 
run the ship next. Right. How Althea will value those same sailors who might be too old, but Efren kept on for their knowledge, you know, things like that. Yeah, no, it is really interesting, though, because I think this is a really good insight to who Althea is at the moment and why she is not going to be successful in her endeavors that like she obviously has a lot of growing to do before she can take over and fill such a big role that her father has left behind because she doesn't quite understand that she isn't any better than anyone else on the ship. She has a role just like everyone else. And I guess like technically a captain is better than like other roles. Like, right. Like, like we all know that, but I think just this attitude of like they're barnacles on the whale that is my ship, who I am (laughs) personally, it just, I think it speaks to her immaturity and also inability to empathize with others really at the moment, at least. Yes. No, she definitely has a lot of growth, but I think right Mm -hmm. now that's her shortcoming. She does say instead of an enforced confinement to her quarters, the day she spent closeted in her room became an all involving experience. She recalled well a day when she had opened her door to find it blazing morning rather than the soft evening she had expected. The cook had been so bold as to take her by the shoulder and shake her when she had drifted off into a daydream in the galley on one of her visits for food. Later, she had been annoyed by an incessant tapping at her door. When she opened it, she found not Kyle, but Brashen standing outside it. He looked uncomfortable at questioning her, but still demanded to know if all was well with her. So we can see here little evidences of her drowning in the memories, just being lost, being vacant, being away from the present. Right. Just kind of daydreaming, going around in a trance. Brashen is very concerned and says, like, yeah, the health of the crew is still my duty, even though if I've, you know, kind of been demoted and everything like that, are you doing okay? And she kind of insists that she is, but she has lost a ton of weight. Right. He also, she also mentions Brashen had said he doesn't know what happened with Kyle, but he is checking up on her. And she lets him know that what happened with Kyle is she's no longer a part of the crew and therefore no longer his concern. Right. Um, to which he replies that as Efren Vestrit's daughter, he is, she is still his concern because mm-hmm. he sees Efren as a friend. So he is still worried and still wants to make sure she's okay. And she continues to brush it off. She mm-hmm. thinks she's fine. She's yeah. having the time of her life. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of sailor superstition, he also says, uh, people have seen you on deck. You drift like a ghost with eyes as empty as the space between the stars. He actually looked worried. Well, he might. The slightest things could set off a crew that w- that had endured too long under too strict a captain. A bewitched woman wandering about the decks might precipitate them into anything. Still, there was nothing she could do about it. Sailors and their superstitions, she scoffed, but could not find much strength to put into her voice. Leave it, Brashen. I'm fine. And she closes the door. In and, his face. Yeah, and uh, there's a couple things that I want to point out there. One, which is that... Here, again, we hear about the superstitions, but two, going back to your point, she views this crew as nothing more than a standard crew that would mutiny at, like, anything. Right. You know, this is, as we hear from a lot of other perspectives, a hand-picked crew that Efren Vestret valued, and people have turned down higher-ranking positions on other ships to stay here. Like, this is... 
the probably the best crew in terms of Brashen's eyes, and obviously he's biased, but right. <laughs> the best crew that is sailing out of Bingtown at any point because of Efren's leadership. Yes. And his ability to see like, hey, you're a valuable person and I will carefully choose a young person so they can learn from you for a while right. and not just kick you off because you're not as able-bodied as before. Right. Or if you are um, unruly and don't fit in, I won't physically punish you. I'll just put you off quietly at the next dock, say good luck and we're, we'll be on our way. Right. You know, it's, it's a very uh, safe place for good sailors to like be comfortable and be stable in their job. And Althea's here just saying the slightest thing could set off a crew like right. this. They're a superstitious under, lot. Under too strict a captain. Yes. Always kind of relating it back to how Kyle is making everything worse. Yeah, and Kyle's the problem, not her. But also, again, the idea that, oh, they're just superstitious sailors. Who cares what they think? Mm-hmm. It's belittling people who are actually probably just worried about her because they know her decently. It's so strange. She It almost doesn't seem to see them as real people who might have feelings other than just their weird superstitions. Yeah. And it's really sad. <laughs> so she immerses herself for the rest of the days and finally feels a change in currents and Vivacia tasting the currents of home, of Bingtown. So they're kind of preparing to go to shore soon. Right. I will say that there was mention that she used to, like we have said, she used to do this when she was a child and her father would chide her and not let her nap, would give her chores so she couldn't nap on the boards. And I do wonder if this is something that Ephra knew could happen. And so he was purposely trying to keep her busy so she couldn't do this. Probably. Or if that was just happenstance where he was he wouldn't let her be idle because you can't be idle on a good ship, you know, probably both. <laughs> <laughs> so it does, but it does make me wonder if this is one of those things, like Althea said before that the captain knew, but it's dying with him, that there's this risk that you could drown in the memories, but you know, it just yeah. wasn't told to her because it didn't seem like she needed to know. Yeah, possibly. But they are almost home. Which she knows because of the taste of the water, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says the vivacious taste of the water. Right. Of home. No, <laughs> no, yeah. The, but just the idea that a ship tastes water, that like the water in the sea would taste different in different places is kind of funny. And so she is talking about preparing to go ashore back to home and talks about the concession that she made with uh, her mother to be always well-dressed when they disembark the ship to look proper in town because her father, Efren, always wore, like, the best, you know, captain suit he had and was always a a man of renown and was marked through the city. And she was going to keep arguing and with her mother's nagging and everything, but it was a word from her father that convinced her to comply. Don't shame your ship, he had told her quietly. That was all that was needed. So she bathes she gets her good clothes on and does realize that she has lost a lot of weight and she doesn't look as good as she did before and maybe brashen was a little right but no he's he's too worried right she's absolutely fine this was needed to bond with vivacia (laughs) right i do also want to ask why do you think 
Efren said, don't shame your ship when it came to Althea wearing pants versus a dress. Is this because he believes that a woman should be wearing a dress on land? Or is this his way of, he knew that this would get Althea to do what he wanted. So, and also get his wife off his back. Mm, Maybe a little of both, but Ronica's not the only one who is concerned with, you know, views to the city. I'm sure Efren also has a little bit of like, hey... We have to represent who we are as the Vestrits. We're old traders. Yeah, that that pride that comes with apparently that comes with all old right. traders in uh, in Big Town, and I'm sure representing their ship is one of those big things. You know, if you come into town, you have to look like you are like you belong there, that you are above everybody else, right. that you're perfect. You know, kind of a pride point. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. I just think it's such a weird thing for him to have said because he seems to not really care about gender roles. And I assume he's the one who put the idea up of her wearing pants on board anyway, since who else would have made that call? Althea was too young and probably wouldn't have even thought of it as an option. You also have to think of the the specific wording he used. Don't shame your ship. That's That's all he thinks about is the ship. So if you're coming off of the family ship, the vivacia right. with dirty hair and dirt under your, your fingernails and pants on and you're not bathed and wearing your pressed clothes for going on shore. Just like he would probably change into his good blue suit coat and everything right. like that. It looks kind of bad on the ship. Like, oh, these people are all dirty coming off this ship. <laughs> right. The vivacia is a crap place to work. <laughs> I suppose, but I don't think her whole deal was that she also wanted a pantsuit like her father had, like with a nice white lacy shirt underneath. And so I don't necessarily know that the problem was that she wasn't cleaning herself before going on land. It was just that she was wearing pants. So I think that's where I'm thinking it's such a weird thing to be like, don't shame your ship when it's like, okay, well, what's shameful though about her wearing? Probably, you know, it's a partnership. I suppose. Appease the wife. Yeah. With her wants as well. I suppose. I don't know. Just a thought that I had. But her newfound weight loss has not worried her at all. She is brushing off Brashen's worry, saying it's fine. Who cares? Saying it's it's, it. it's no different than the fasting and isolation one does to seek Sa's guidance, except it was seeking vivacious guidance. But before that, she does mention that even her hands had lost flesh, the bones of her wrist and fingers standing out. That is not good. No, that's that, like a that's significant like the last things to go. You yeah, know? <laughs> that's a lot of weight to lose. Ugh. She said she also says she was almost grateful to Kyle for bringing this about almost. She emerges, kind of sees Bingtown spread out before them. They're not at dock yet because Golden Down is getting unloaded right now. So they're kind of just waiting out in port for their turn to get to the dock. But they have two small boats that are going to bring them to shore and uh, send them on their way. And the other sailors will unload the goods. Right. And it's not necessarily... I think the end docks is it. It's the tax docks that they're going to, which we get the barest minimum of explanation of what happens at the docks. Uh, You stop by the tax dock first. You have to, it's one ship at a time. And it's so that the satraps, satrap? I say satrap. It's easier to say for me. (laughs) So the satraps people 
can take note of what you have and get a correct tax based off of the goods. Um, so that goes directly to the satrap. Yep. The 50% of profits. Yes. Which is very steep. Yeah. It's the deal that they made though. I suppose. (laughs) Instinctively, her eyes sought her home. She could see one corner of the white walls of the house. The rest was obscured by shade trees. She frowned for a moment at the changes she saw on the surrounding hills, but then dismissed them. Land and town had little to do with her. Her impatience and her worry about her father's help, health mingled with a strange reluctance to leave the vivacia. The captain's gig had not yet been lowered over the side. By tradition, she would ride ashore in that. She did not relish the thought of seeing Kyle again, let alone sharing a boat ride with him. But somehow it did not seem as significant a displeasure as it would a week or two ago. She knew now that he would never uh, part her from the vivacia. She was bonded to the ship. The ship herself would not tolerate being sailed without her. Wanted to talk about that real quick because she's very wrong. It yes. is traumatic for Vivacia, but she's very wrong about it. Um, but also, I wanted to point out she saw the changes that we uh, around on the surrounding hills of Bingtown that Ronica was pointing out and being very surprised at. You know, clearing off for all the logging, new mansions being built, and promptly dismisses them saying you know the land was not her her problem her problem at all right which is very effrin vested of her yeah <laughs> however it is also naive to believe that changes on land would not affect you on your ship right like things change and that can also change trade and how you're perceived mm-hmm. and what you're supposed to do and so it's really interesting this like deep feeling that both she and her father share of like land matters are for other people not me it's a very young and uneducated way to view things in my opinion because she hasn't needed to deal with you know tax laws or import laws or anything like that you know it's all been her father doing it and i'm sure because he spoils her hasn't really taught her the ins and outs of boring things right. <laughs> related yeah. to the trade. So it's it's just another way that she does have to grow up is look at the wider view and not just her pleasure and her future. Right. If you are going to be commanding the lives of multitudes of other sailors and trying to maintain a livelihood for people that are that are on the shore and that do have responsibilities or and family that lives there, you need to take into account everyone <laughs> that is under your control or your pay. Right. And also just knowing that more people coming in means that there's going to be a more saturated market. Understanding yeah. that that means that potentially your goods are going to be worthless because there is more of it there. It's a market research. Go yes. on, Althea. <laughs> To be fair, that is a little bit more challenging of a concept, although I would assume if you're working in this industry from a young age, you should have some concept, you would hope. It, it feels like Althea isn't a trader. She's just a sailor Yeah, in my mind. like She just likes being on a ship out in the ocean. And yes, she becomes a great captain and everything like that, but I still feel like Brashen's the one doing the trading. <laughs> in that partnership potentially yeah i, I don't know because 
she never talks about trading. She never talks about specific goods unless it's like, oh, my father knew this place or my grandfather knew this secret place. Like it's. Yeah, she doesn't I'm, really talk about she she did talk go into detail about how she knows how to store the goods that they're right. getting and, and like how Kyle's run was really bad and she doubts he made much profit or anything like that. Right. Like, and how like some cargo is worse to buy than others. Mm-hmm. So she like has con like Ideas, the bare minimum right. concept of but yeah, I don't know. It is really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, she's kind of thinking of Kyle now and winces at the words that she said and, and knows that her father's going to be angry at her and she would deserve it because of the, some things that she said, but knew him too well to fear that he would separate her from the vivacia now. And again, also very wrong right. because of the deal that they make. Right. Yeah. It is really interesting to see what happens next chapter and to see how Althea is really trusting of her father. And she doesn't take into account her mother's influence. No, (laughs) I mean, her father makes good decisions and he is obviously a great captain. He is very wise in the ways of captaining a ship and doing his job well. And then he also has never made her upset. It seems like he kind of gives her what she wants and her mom is just an annoying person that sometimes they have to give into and they'll meet halfway. But I don't think she understands that that's not how her father views her mother. Right. And also there's all this stuff going on. I don't know. She just has never had to think about it. And it is really sad because really her dad did nothing to prepare her for the opportunity or for the chance that she might not be on the ship. He never set that up. He never even let her think that that was not a possibility, which is part of the reason why I think that he's not a very good person, which we also see that his plan all along was to have her as the next captain of the ship. Right. But he ultimately doesn't do that. And the fact that he had no backup plan for her and like hadn't even, I don't know. It just is so convinced on her. That makes me so sad for her, even though I don't think she would be He's a horrible person for getting sick and dying right now. Yeah. <laughs> How dare <laughs> he, he can't help that, but <laughs> he could have prepared her for the possibility yes. that she was not going to be captain. No, no one's denying that. Yeah. And I mean, I will say in this chapter and it goes into depth about how he keeps old people on and like, you know, like that, obviously he is a good person in some degree. I will concede that he is not a terrible person. I just don't like him as a father to Althea. So that will be my concession. (laughs) (laughs) So she's kind of standing, looking over the side, anticipating and yet dreading leaving Vivacia and going home. And Brashen is once again coming up to her and asking how she's doing and informs her that he has been ordered by the captain to make sure that all of the uh, all of her belongings (laughs) are vacated from the room. He asks, Mrs. Althea, have you baggage you wish taken ashore? After being a little bit more informal with her and her kind of brushing him aside, he turns to that formal Mistress Althea address. Yes. And she says, it's just the small chest inside the door of my stateroom, um, which holds the gifts for her family. And he clears his throat awkwardly. He did not walk away. And she turned to him in some irritation. What? 
The captain has ordered me to assist you in any way necessary to remove your possessions from the uh, officer's stateroom. Brashen stood very straight, and his eyes looked past her shoulder. For the first time in months, she truly saw him. What had it cost him to step down from first mate to sailor, simply to remain aboard this ship? She'd taken the brunt of Kyle's tongue only once. She'd lost count of the times that either he or his first mate had taken Brashen to task. Yet here he still was, given a distasteful order whose wisdom he doubted, and doing his best to carry it out as a proper ship's officer. She spoke more to herself than to Brashen when she said, No doubt he gets a great deal of pleasure from assigning this duty to you. He didn't reply. The muscles in his jaws bunched a notch tighter, but he held his tongue. Even now, he would not speak out against his captain's orders. He was hopeless. Just the small chest, Brashen. He drew up a breath as if it had the weight of an anchor. Mistress Althea, I am ordered to see your possessions removed from that cabin. She looked away from him. She was suddenly horribly weary of Kyle's posturing. Let him think he had his way for now. Her father would soon put it all aright. Then follow your order, Brashen. I shan't hold it against you. He looks a little shocked that she won't even see to the packing, and she's like, no, I've seen you pack stuff before. You're, you'll do a great job. And he and then is she off ignores on his way. Him. Yep. Yeah, she ignores him until he is off on his way. She turns around, and that's the end of that conversation for her, which later she takes as a slight when somebody else does to her. I find interesting. Um, but I also want to talk about how she is viewing this situation. We don't ever get to see Brashen's side of this interaction. Um, we only see it from Althea's point of view. And I think it's interesting that she is seeing this as it's a distasteful order that he would not want to do. And Maybe he does see it as distasteful because he respects Efren, and if Efren wants Althea on board, who is Kyle to take that away? Right. But she just seems to think that everyone else holds her in such a high regard that yeah. that just the idea of kicking her off the ship would be distasteful to them. And, and it's just posturing on Kyle's, you know. Yeah, Kyle has no real authority to do that. Because he can't separate her from Vivacia. Right. Ever. And I don't know. I just find that so interesting that there's not even a hint in her mind that maybe he just feels bad that Efren's daughter is getting kicked off right. or that there's anything else. And also that she thinks he's hopeless because he won't even now won't badmouth Kyle. And it's like, that's what professionals do. Right. Like that's when you're at a job, you have to be professional. Like you don't get to just say what you actually want to say. You need the job. And, and we see it from, Brashen's point of view, that specific reason at the end of this chapter, him saying a lot of soldiers didn't have a home besides this ship. Right. Including him. So he's not going to jeopardize anything like that. Right. So then there is, um, after Brashen walks away, the announcement that they're going to leave. Gig's waiting on you, Mistress Althea. The note in the man's voice implied that he had spoken to her before, possibly more than once. She straightened herself and reluctantly put her dreams aside. I'm com coming, she told him spiritlessly, and followed him. So again, she was kind of lost in daydreams and those memories again. Right. I do think it's really interesting that Kyle does let her go on the captain's rig out per usual. I just find that an interesting detail because I would think that Kyle would not want to give her any more of an inflated ego 
and would put her on a regular one. But maybe it's because she's a woman and he doesn't want her with the riffraff of the rest of the crew. I mean, it's also literally the daughter of his father-in-law and like part of the owners of the ship too. Like she's still a vestry. You know, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I guess I just like expected him to be a little bit more petty about it. Mm. <laughs> he hasn't seen her for 17 days. That's so. true. And speaking of that, Althea talks about how she took the seat furthest away from him, which can't be that far because it is kind of a rowboat. Um, so it can't be, you know, that much space. But she does take as far away of a seat as she can from him. And they are facing each other. And she mentions that they only meet eyes three times. But each time it feels it fills her with confusion. At their first encounter, he looked almost horror struck. A second glance showed his face deeply thoughtful. But the last time she caught him looking at her was the most chilling. For he nodded at her and smiled fondly and encouragingly. It was the same look he would have bestowed on his daughter Malta if she had learned her lessons particularly well. She turned expressionlessly away from it and gazed out over the placid waters of Trader Bay. Which is very scary. Right. So, I think this speaks a lot to how when you have two different points of view, sometimes you think you have the upper hand and Mm -hmm. really you're giving the other person what they want. In this case, Althea thought that the best thing to do would be to hide herself away and actually listen to Kyle's rules and then tell her father and her father would be mad and Kyle would get in trouble. But the thing about Kyle is that he thinks that she is an unruly wild woman and just needs a stronger hand. So after he slapped her and then she listened to him, he now feels justified and as though she has actually taken to heart what he has told her and that he is the God of a man that he thinks he is that gets to tell Althea what being a real woman is. I don't know. It's really, it's really interesting when you have two people who are measuring their bushels differently as the fool would have said, (laughs) (laughs) because we do get this misunderstanding and Althea doesn't really understand it. And she kind of doesn't care. She's not really in the mood to play. And if she would be her fiery self, I think Kyle would realize that he hadn't won quote unquote. And I guess really the idea that somebody needs to win an encounter in and of itself is childish, but Althea's whole thing is that she doesn't think Kyle has won and Kyle definitely thinks he has won. Mm -hmm. They get to shore. They're offloaded. They have a two-wheeled shimshe with a small boy driving them, ready and waiting for them, and they start heading up towards the Vestra house. She's kind of staring over Bingtown and offered no conversation um, to Kyle, saying it was bad enough that she had to sit next to him. She would not annoy herself by conversing with him. And he intrudes on her thoughts of Bingtown and asks, Are you all right? As well as I could expect, thank you, she replied stiffly. He fidgeted and then cleared his throat as if he were getting ready to say more. She was saved by the boy pulling in the horse right in front of it, in, right in front of home. He was by the side of the shimshe, offering his hand to her before Kyle could even stir. She smiled at him as she stepped down, and he grinned back at her. A moment later, the, the door of the house flew open, and Kefria rushed out, crying, Oh, Kyle, Kyle, I'm so glad you're home. Everything is just awful. Selden and Malta were at mother's heels as she flew forwards to embrace her husband. Another boy followed them awkwardly. 
He looked oddly familiar, probably a visiting cousin or some such. Nice to see you too, Kefria, Althea muttered sarcastically and headed for their door. So again, we see Althea giving Kyle probably exactly what he wants. He doesn't think women should converse with him. So I don't think that her being quiet is the snide thing that she thinks it is. Yeah, maybe. Kyle seems to be a kind of person who thinks women should be seen and not heard. I think that is evident in how he treats all of the women and just the fact that he is Chalcedian and believes in the Chalcedian way that that is the role of the woman is to be a pretty wife. Not, I think, I think he did want to talk to her though, like as evidence of him clearing his throat and getting ready to say more In Althea's mind, at least she thought he was going to talk to her more. Right. So I think he wanted to have that conversation. It wasn't just like a, well, glad that you're quiet. No, but I think that her being like, I'm not going to talk to him. He doesn't deserve my company. Like, I don't think that's the big burn that Althea thinks it is. Right. He doesn't want to talk to her anyway. Like he doesn't seem to respect women's point of view. What could she possibly say that would interest him? Not that I think that she doesn't have interesting things to say or that, you know, he wouldn't talk to her back. I just don't think it's this burn that like, I'll just give him the silent treatment. Like, okay, Althea, that's probably what he wants, but go for it. (laughs) She enters in the house and, oh, by the way, we, we didn't speak about um, the boy following them as Wintrow. Yes. That she that looks vaguely familiar. I She is just so oblivious and, like, literally thinks she is the center of the world. It is, <laughs> like, ridiculous. I mean, no one really knows how to react to Wintrow. And That's we'll, fair. we'll get to it later because he has some point of view in this chapter as well. But it's, he's in a weird place. Definitely. So. But, it, I mean... I don't know. The fact that I guess he's been gone for a couple of years, but mm-hmm. well, he, he um, follows along behind and Althea goes in to the house and sees a serving woman who she does not recognize. Probably Rach. Yeah. I would guess. And um, says, no, 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 I'm not a guest here after, you know, offered some things from the, from the serving woman. She's like, I live here. I'm Althea. Where's my father? Is he in the sitting room? And, the serving woman looks with sympathy from her eyes and says, no, he hasn't had strength enough to do that for weeks now. And before she reached the door, after she was running off down the hallway, her mother appeared in an entry, a worried frown creasing her forehead. What is going on? She demanded. And then as she recognized Althea, she cried out in relief. Oh, you are back. And Kyle, he's outside. Is father still ill? It has been months. I thought surely he would have. Your father is dying, Althea, her mother said. As Althea recoiled from her bluntness, she saw the dullness in her mother's eyes. There were lines in her face that had not been there, a heaviness to her mouth and a curl in her shoulders that Althea did not recall. Even as her own heart near stilled with the shock of it, she recognized that her mother's words were not cruel but hopeless. She had given her the news quickly, as if by doing so she could save her the slow pain of realization. Oh, mother, she said, and moved towards her, but her mother flapped her hands at her in refusal. Althea stopped instantly. Ronica Vestrid had never been one for tearful embraces and weeping on shoulders. She might be bowed by her sorrow, but she had not surrendered to it. Go and see your father, she told Althea. He's been asking for you nearly hourly. I must speak to Kyle. There are arrangements to be made and not much time. Go to him now. Go. 
and she heads over to the her parents' room. Right. Where Efren has been laying in sick, where Ronica and Devad had that conversation. Yes. Also, she knows to go here because Rach had told her, uh, who we are assuming is Rach, told her that he would be there. Yes. And I do feel a little bit bad. So the fact that her mother cut her off in the middle of her asking about her father with he's dying, no preamble, no like softening the blow, just get it out quick. It's really sad. And I get that obviously her mother is grieving. It's her husband that's dying. It is just still really hard to think about how that is how Althea heard the news is yeah. that her, that her father was dying is just a quick he's dying. She didn't know he was even close to death. Mm-hmm. And that is how she was told. It just, I don't know. I feel really bad for her. And I get like, it's hard. Cause again, I get it. Like grief is hard and Ronica has her own stuff that she needs to work on. But yeah, that would be a rough way to find out. Yeah, definitely. Although Althea doesn't really seem too put out by it. She notes that her mom was probably just trying to save, you know, the pain of the buildup or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's so like, clearly this isn't something that she couldn't handle or like didn't, I don't know, I guess wouldn't have expected, but it still makes me sad for her. She heads to her parents' room, which she's kind of thinking about as was always forbidden to her as a child on their visits home. And as she grew older, she willingly avoided it on their visits home. Because she understood why yes. her parents would want to spend time alone together in their bedroom. <laughs> and kind of remarks on, you know, the exotic trappings and furniture and, and decorations in this room from his travels. And she's remarking and thinking back on, like, what it was like in the few peaks that she got at this room. And now she enters it and can contrast it with the dimness There was a thick, sour odor of the sick room and the stinging scent of medicines there. The windows were closed, curtains drawn against any light. And she goes to the bed and is kind of horrified at what she sees. She calls out for Papa, and he's not really responding at all. His hands have lost any calluses or anything like that. Similar thoughts that mirror Ronica's from the previous chapter of like, this is not the big great captain that I married, you know, this is not the strapping, fantastic, charismatic, strong dad that Althea had. And she thinks that he's dead. Like, this is it. Like he's already dead here. Right. And we also see her struggle with the guilt of being repulsed by his sickliness, which I think is something that anyone who has a loved one who has died from sickness can relate to that there's that kind of like well especially for Althea she didn't see the slow progression this is all at once when she left her father was somewhat healthy and now he is sickly and just that initial reaction to holding his hand that is limp and gross makes her feel bad that she is even having this and I, I think that that 
guilt of like, oh, that's not something I should be thinking. I need to just appreciate that he's still alive, mm-hmm. I think is so real and raw. Yeah. And I think it really makes Robin Hobbs writing <laughs> what it makes it one of the things that makes it very good is just that that does feel really real. That there's that like you have natural human thoughts and then you feel guilty because like, oh, that's not I shouldn't do that. But like you can't <laughs> help, you know, a knee jerk reaction. That's not. It's not your fault necessarily. <laughs> so he wakes up, says Althea. She responds, I'm home with false brightness. And his hand twitched feebly in hers. Then his eyes slid shut again. I'm dying, he told her in despair and anger. Oh, Papa, no, you'll get better. You'll shut up. It was no more than a whisper, but the command came from both her captain and her father. Only one thing that matters. Get me to Vivacia. Got to die on her decks. Got to. I know, she said. The pain that had just started unfolding in her heart was suddenly stilled. There was no time for it just now. I'll get things ready. Right now, he warned her. His whisper sounded gurgling, drowning. A wave of despair washed over her, but she righted herself. I won't fail you, she promised him. His hand twitched again and fell free of hers. I'll go right now. As she stood, he choked, then managed to gag out, Althea! She halted where she stood. He strangled for a bit, then gasped in a breath. Kefria and her children, they're not like you. He took another frantic breath. I had to provide for them, I had to. He fought for more breath for speaking, but could not find any. Of course you did. You provided well for all of us. Don't worry about that now. Everything is going to be fine, I promise. She had left the room and was halfway down the hall before she heard what was what she had said to him. What had she meant by that promise? That she would make sure he died on the live ship he commanded so long? It was an odd definition of fine, then. With unshakable certainty, she knew that when her time came to die, if she could die in Vivacious decks, everything would be fine for her, too. She rubbed at her face, feeling as if she were just waking up. Her cheeks were wet. She was weeping. No time for that just now. No time to feel. No time to weep. She runs out and hurries to a group of people. And there is silence. They stared at her in silence. For a moment she returned that stricken gaze. Then, I'm going down to get the ship ready. Give me an hour, then bring Papa down. Kyle frowns darkly and made as if to speak. But before he could, her mother nodded and dully said, Do so. Her voice closed down on the words, and Althea watched her struggle to speak through a throat gone tight with grief. Hurry, she managed at last, and Althea nodded. She sets off on foot, because calling a driver would take too long, and she hears Kyle in the background, at least send a servant with her, and more softly her mother replies, No, let her go, let her go. There's no time to be concerned about appearances now, I know. Come help me prepare a litter for him. She heads to the docks. It is a very horrible scene for more reasons than just him dying. Right. And how it's described. It's because that since there is such a pressure for time, since he is so sick and he only has a few hours left because he's been clinging to life for so long, 
it leaves no time for grief. There's a few instances in here where Althea has to say to herself, like, there's no time. I, I can't do that right now. She says her pain subsides because there's an urgent task to do is to prepare the ship. Right. It just is probably the same kind of feeling that Ronica has as well. Just like there's so much to do. Like I can't, can't yeah. really give in. And it, it's a really horrible way to be left with grief, right? Right. To, to just put it aside for now. Yeah, she doesn't even really get the time to mourn or at or least talk just... talk to him. <laughs> yeah, talk to him to enjoy his company for one of the last few times. It is really sad. And then also, he's on his deathbed feeling guilty for what he is ultimately going to do to his daughter and she doesn't even know. And he is trying to beg for forgiveness for something she doesn't know about. Yeah. He tells her he had to because it's they are different. They need help. And she's like, it's fine. It's fine. Not knowing that what he's talking about is giving over the vivacia to Kyle instead of her. Yeah. And that Wintro, I believe, is the one going to be going on board even now. Right. Or was it or did they agree that Althea would be on board and she runs away, so they switch to Wintrow. I don't remember. But I think it, Althea is supposed to be on board, but yeah. he refuses and says, no, Wintrow will be on board. Like, I don't think she's ever yeah. given the option. Mm, okay. But yeah, the ship is going over to Kyle. Yeah. And that's really sad. I mean, obviously, what is Althea going to do at this point? She can't really rail against that. There's no time for her to be angry and to fight her father on this what because she doesn't even know right she doesn't know but even if she did what would she do about it right and so it's really hard i guess it's good that she doesn't have to know that going into this but it is even it just adds another layer of sadness and as for a rereader especially yes yeah yeah, obviously as a first time reader, there's the potential that you read this as him asking for forgiveness for putting Kyle in charge of the last time. Um, I remember thinking like, oh no, this doesn't seem good. This doesn't, this doesn't look good for Althea and her ownership of the ship, but you don't know for sure as a first time reader, but right. as a second time through, it is ultimately really sad and heartbreaking because this is the only chance he's going to get to talk to Althea and he's not even well enough to really talk to her her talk. Yeah. Yeah. So she makes it down to the docks and has to wait a little bit impatiently for Vivacia to come up so she can board her again and has a confrontation with the first mate. Right. She also talks about how it's hard because she is, as we said before, dressed as a woman, um, should be in petticoats and extra layers and a fancy dress and a hat. Um, and she's had to run from her house down to the docks. So she is cursing her fate as a woman because it is very hard to run in all these layers in this hot weather. Yep. So she gets on board. She is sweaty <laughs> and has a confrontation with Gantry, Kyle's first mate. Notices that he has... Uh, a big knot on the uh, side of his face. His whole face has kind of swelled and begun to purple. Dismissed it from her mind because that's kind of the, the mate's job is to keep the crew in line. And often, I guess that happens with fighting. Right. Which seems odd because I don't think Efren Vestret would allow fights on his ship. Right. But 
maybe I'm it sure happens every just, once in a while. I don't probably know. just chalks it up to this is Kyle's thing. <laughs> right. So, so he confronts her saying, Hey, what, what are you doing here? Obviously angry doesn't like her cause he's Kyle's hand chosen first mate. Right. Probably <laughs> person. Yeah. Probably thinks that she is there trying to sneak on board in protest of Kyle. Right. And at any other time she would have, you know, been offended at his tone. But right now she just kind of says, my father is dying. I've come to prepare the ship to receive him. He looked no less hostile, but there was deference in his tone as he asked, what do you wish done? So she is kind of at a loss here. She doesn't really know for sure. So she presses her hands on top of the deck of Ivasia and kind of recalls to her mind what happened when her grandfather died and like the memories from Vivacia and gives directions to set up a pavilion right on deck with nothing in between uh, like the ground and the deck, no blankets or tarps or anything like that. Yeah. I think it also goes to show how quickly everything is moving. She offered to help with this and assumed that she is the best for this task as did everyone else. Um, obviously minus Kyle because she's with the live ship. She knows all the things about the live ships. And when she gets here, she realizes that she went so quickly. She forgot that she actually barely remembers her grandfather's passing and doesn't really know what it is to do exactly. She has to really think to say, Oh yeah, actually I'm not hundred percent sure. And she gets the vivacious help um, potentially, or maybe she just, remembers with taking a break and really thinking about it. But either way, she has figured out what it is, the bare minimum that she needs. And Gantry is not happy because they are still in the middle of taking all the items off of the dock or off of the ship. They are trying to unload. And he asks how he is supposed to have the hands to unload. If people are making a pavilion and setting up benches for mourners Mm -hmm. in, in full view and hearing of his crew as well with somewhat of a challenge in his voice. So Althea is like, why is he arguing with me now? As he's saying that, like what, like you expect my crew to do both at the same time, unload this stuff and set up a pavilion. Right. And she talks about how, like, couldn't he see how important a quickening of a live ship is? And then realizes, no, probably not. He was one of Kyle's choosing, so he knew nothing of the quickening of a live ship. And almost as if her father stood at her shoulder, she heard her voice mouth the familiar command that he'd always given Brashen in difficult times. She straightened her spine. Cope, she ordered him succinctly. She glanced about the deck. Sailor has pa- sailors had paused their tasks to follow this interchange. In some faces, she saw sympathy and understanding. In others, only the avidity with which men watch the battle of wills. She put a touch of snarl in her voice. If you can't deal with it, put Brashen in charge. He'll find it no challenge. She started to turn away, then turned back. In fact, that's the best solution. Put Brashen in charge of the setting up for Captain Vestrit. He's his first mate. That's fitting. You see to the unloading of your captain's cargo. On board, there can be but one captain, Gantry observed. He looked aside as if not truly speaking to her, but she chose to reply anyway. That's correct, sailor. And when Captain Vestrit is aboard, there is but one captain. I doubt you'll find many on this, on board this ship that question that. She swung her eyes away from him to the ship's carpenter. 
As much as she currently disliked the man, his loyalty to her father had always been absolute. She caught his glance and addressed him. Assist Brashen in any way he requires. Be quick. My father will arrive here soon. If this is the last time he sets foot on board, I'd like him to see the Vivacia shipshape and the crew busy. And with that, people get to work. Yeah. She says that the simple appeal was all that she needed and sudden understanding swept over his face and the look he gave to the rest of the crew quickly spread the realization. This was real and this was urgent. So the crew kind of understands this is the last time they might see their captain. Right. And he's dying. Yeah. Which they probably also had no way of knowing was going to happen. They knew he was sick enough to not be able to travel. Right. But this is like worst case scenario. Yeah. yeah. And of all times, Gantry, the first mate, is choosing now to try to play a power of wills and see Kyle really is the one in charge while somebody's about to die. And it's not great. (laughs) Clearly Kyle has picked his first mate well because they go well together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Gantry kind of takes a breath as if to call back the carpenter who's going to go look for Brashen and then just pauses and begins barking out orders to continue unloading and just turns enough. So Althea is not in his line of sight and dismisses her. And she had a reflex of anger before she recalled she had no time for his petty insolence just now. Her father was dying, which is what you were talking about when she feels slighted by ignoring somebody who's right there. Yes, which is, as I had said, exactly what she does to Brashen all of the time, but especially earlier when he was supposed to unpack her room or pack up her room, I guess. So, yeah, a little bit just taste of her own medicine and she feels as though it is a slight to her personally and doesn't quite realize how maybe that's how other people feel when she does it to them. So she turns around and sees Brashen talking to the ship's carpenter, talking about, you know, setting everything up and notices that he has a swollen knot above his left eye. So he and the mate had been in a fight before. Right. It is also, we should mention that the carpenter did say he was going to go find Brashen. I believe Brashen had been kicked off the ship at this point? No, he was still packing up Althea's room. Oh, because that was his last... Right, right, right. But I think, ultimately, he was... Yeah, he was off the ship. Yes, that is why there was a fight. Um, So I thought that was important to note. There was little more for her to do except stand about and watch. She'd given Brash in command of the situation, and he'd accepted it. One thing she had learned from her father, once you put a man in charge of something, you don't didn't ride him while he did the task. Nor did she wish Gantry to grumble that she stood about and got in the way. With nowhere else to go gracefully go, she went to her cabin and kind of sees the remains of Brashen packing up everything, and everything was packed away except for the the portrait of Vivacia at this point. So kind of knows that's where Brashen was, and then gets caught up in the actual moment. Well, that's the thing. This is where she's assuming Brashen was. We don't know where he was actually found, where Gantry was talking to him at. That's fair. Um, So that's why I thought he had already been kicked off. The task is done. He's not here. Um, Well, they're on ship, and it doesn't say that the carpenter jumps off the ship to find Brashen. You know, it just says he strode away and then comes back, and she turns around and Brashen's there. So I'm assuming that he was still on the ship at this point, probably packing up her things and then packing up his things to go. Okay, yeah. I guess I don't know. I just assumed that he must have been nearby or something. Because 
this seems like a fresh fight, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I just assume that she's assuming where yeah. he was and what he was doing. But in the comfort of her, of her stateroom, she finally has the chance to really think about what is going on and grieve. And she sobs and cries and gets a moment to feel her feelings. And yeah, she allows herself to simply weep. And we kind of shift over to Wintro then. Yes. And we get a little bit more of, you know, him thinking back to the last few days since he arrived and his whole thought process of this. We're going to go back in time a little bit, just a little bit. Right. As Wintro is reflecting on this and... He's saying that he's been in Bingtown for five days now and still had no idea why they had summoned him home. His grandfather was dying, of course he knew that, but he could scarcely see what they expected him to do about it, or even how they expected him to react. Wintrow's just kind of, he's 13 years old. Right. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's been estranged from his family for years at this point. No one really recognizes him or likes him anymore in this family. Right. That's not fair. His mother and grandmother seem to yes. like him. Yeah. Um, but he does feel out of place. It is very clear his awkwardness and everyone else's awkwardness towards him. He talks about how even in this moment where his grandfather is dying, like he thought his grandfather was scary while he was alive or like full of life. And he's even scarier now that he is consumed by death at his door that yeah the abundance of life was what made him scary the lack thereof is equally scary it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it is not a fun time to be and it's especially hard for him because he isn't like you said he isn't close with anybody yeah. he doesn't feel this isn't his family that he's like oh no mm-hmm. grandpa he's kind of like okay an old man's dying it happens <laughs> He says on the ride over that he resolved to get to know his grandfather more before he did pass away, and he doesn't have time to do that. Not that he had alone time with him anyways, because they've just kind of like left him alone, and Wincho's kind of just been following around. When he had first arrived, his mother had scarcely given him time to wash the dust of travel from his face and hands before she ushered him in and presented him to Efren. Disoriented after his sea voyage and the rattling trip through the hot and bustling city streets, he had barely been able to grasp that this short, dark-haired woman was the mama he had once looked up to. The room she hurried him into had been curtained against the day's heat and light. Inside was a woman in a chair beside a bed. The room smelled sm- sour and close, and it was all he could do to stand still when the woman rose and embraced him. Which was Ronica. Right. Efren, she had said quietly, Efren, Wintrow is here. And Wintrow stands there, shackled by his grandmother's grip on his wrists, and only belatedly offered a hello grandfather i've come home to visit if the old man had heard him at all he hadn't bothered with a reply and after a few moments his grandfather had coughed again and then queried hoarsely ship no not yet they stand there awkwardly and then eventually ronica's like okay i think he wants to rest now everyone leave and and that's pretty much the extent of everything right yeah has just been waiting to die yes and there isn't really any effort he can give to anything besides asking about his ship. Mm-hmm. And now we have caught up to, you know, th- there's no more time to get to know him because 
he hasn't got better, and now his father's home. The news of Efren Vestrit's imminent death seemed to be all his mind could grasp. Looking at, uh, speaking of Kyle, he had glanced at Wintrow over his mother's shoulder as he embraced her. His eyes widened briefly, and he nodded at his eldest son, but then his mother Kefria began to pour out her torrent of bad news and all its complications. Wintrow stood apart, like a stranger, as first his sister, Malta, and then his younger brother, Selden, welcomed their father with a hug. At last, there had been a pause in Kefria's lament, and he stepped forward to first bow and then grip hands with his father. So, my son the priest, his father greeted him, and Wintrow could still not decide if there had been a breath of derision in those words. The next did not surprise him. Your little sister is taller than you are, and why are you wearing a robe like a woman? Kyle, his mother rebuked her husband, but he turned away from Wintrow without awaiting a reply. And now Althea has left, so we're kind of moving forward slowly in these in time. Right. So... It's really interesting to see how Kyle interacts with his oldest son. We know that Malta is kind of the apple of his eye and a little bit of of uh, Althea and Efren relationship going on where yep. Malta gets spoiled and given everything she wants and reassured that her worldview is best by Kyle. But he does not act that way towards his son. He is forever unhappy with how Selden is. Wintrow. Wintrow, sorry. Selden's too young, <laughs> but he is unhappy with Wintrow and this isn't something new because this is the first time Wintrow has seen his father in forever. And he says that the biting remarks don't surprise him. Yep. Yeah. He's always been too thoughtful, too small, not a dashing, strong, brash man or right. young man yeah. that his father probably wanted. So not manly enough for Kyle. And they kind of go back into the house with Malta and Selden asking questions and being shushed by Ronica and Winter just trailing all of them. Right. It's really interesting because the way Wintrow describes Malta and Selden is as though they are baby chicks. They are young children and they are vying for their mother's attention. They don't really grasp the situation that's going on. They seem to just want attention. And Ronica has to shush them and tell them not now because they're trying to distract Kefria because Kefria isn't giving them enough attention. And it's so interesting to have this because we are about to, like, further in the book, get to Malta's point of view where she thinks she's so adult. Right. So it's interesting to see her older brother's take where she's still so young mm -hmm. and immature. And this is how she's acting with the death of the family patriarch. And, <laughs> and she doesn't really care. Um, Wintrow trailed after all of them, feeling neither adult nor child, nor truly a part of this emotional carnival. And he says on his journey there, he didn't really know what to expect and for the first day, most of his conversations had been with his mother and had consisted of either her exclamation, her exclamations over how thin he was or fond remembrances and reminiscing that inevitably began with, I don't suppose you remember this, but... And then he says, Malta, once so close to him as to seem almost his shadow, now resented him for coming home and claiming any of their mother's attention. She did not speak to him, but about him making stinging observations when their mother was out of earshot, ostensibly to the servants or Selden. It did not help that at twelve she was taller than he was, and already looking more like a woman than he did a man. 
no one would have suspected he was the elder. And Selden, scarcely more than a baby when he had left, now dismissed him as a visiting relative, one scarcely worth getting to know, as he would doubtless soon be leaving. Wintrow fervently hoped Selden was right. So it, it does show a drifting apart and kind of what I was getting at before. Wintrow's been gone for so long that no one really cares about him. And even Kefria, who, yes, did not want to send Wintrow off to be a priest, who does love him, and Ronica, the grandmother, but not very touchy-feely right. <laughs> as a person. Kefria only has like, oh, I don't suppose you remember this, but remember when you were young and this happened, right. you know, that that's kind of the only conversations that he has. And all the rest of it is kind of biting remarks and sideways comments at him. And I don't know. Right. No, I think it is a challenging thing because he is in a family who does not seem to be capable of normal familial love. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not really a compassionate household to walk into. I think of all of the members, Kefria is probably one of the more compassionate ones. And even she is struggling in trying to connect with her son that's been gone. And I think part of that is a little bit coming from the fact that Selden is, or sorry, Wintrow is so awkward and that yeah, he, he's so reserved and he doesn't want to be part of this. He wants to right. go back. He doesn't want any part of being a vestrate. He is here because he has to be because they made him come. And I think that we should keep that in mind as we read his point of view of this, of I don't really feel like I'm part of this family, but at the same time, he is making steps to keep himself apart from this family. Yeah, definitely. It is, I don't think it's fair to say that nobody cares about him because I think they do care about him. I think they're just not very vocal about it. And he doesn't Malta though. Well, she's pretty horrible. She's hurt. I think it's <laughs> explained that she was, her feelings were hurt that they were so close. And then he left her because mm, she couldn't yeah. quite grasp that he had number one, no control over it. And number two, like no way of, keeping in contact with her afterwards. Right. It just, she was a child when it happened. She's still a child. So she's childishly overreacting to that hurt. Yeah. And so I don't know. So I think part of it is that it is awkward. They haven't seen him in a really long time, but he also is making no effort to make yeah, that definitely. less awkward. That definitely agree. So he's kind of thinking of all this stuff while he's following along with the family and then decides to try to make an effort to tune in to what the conversation is about. So they're stopped kind of outside or before they go towards um, his grandfather's door. And he tunes in to hear, I think it best to say nothing at all about any of it, his grandmother was saying to his father. She had hold of the doorknob but was not turning it. She almost appeared to be barring him from the room. From his father's furrowed brow, it was plain that Kyle Haven did not agree with his mother-in-law. But mother had hold of his arm and was looking up at him beseechingly and nodding like a toy. It would only upset him, she interjected. And to no purpose, his grandmother went on as if they shared a mind. It has taken me weeks to talk him around to our way of seeing things. He has agreed, but grudgingly. Any complaints now would but reopen the discussion. And when he is weary and in pain, he can be surprisingly stubborn. She paused and both women looked up at his father, as if commanding his assent. He did not even nod. At last he conceded resentfully, I shall not bring it up immediately. Let us get him down to the ship first. That is the most important thing. Exactly, Grandmother Vestrid agreed, and finally opened the door. 
they entered. Uh, Malta and Selden try to follow, but are barred and say, and uh, Ronica gives them some instructions to, you know, pack some food, pack some clothes, arrange food to be brought down to the ship. Just get ready, get yourselves ready to go down to the ship. So finally turns, she turns to Winter and is like, kind of confused about what to direct towards him, but like, hey, you'll need some clothes and stuff. So yeah. you can get yourself ready too. <laughs> yeah. And she notes that, you know, they don't know how long they'll be there. So pack some clothes. And then it kind of hits her that yeah. it's because we'll be living aboard the ship now until, oh dear, until her husband dies. Yes. And color suddenly fled from her face. Bleak realization flooded it. Wintrow had seen that look before. Many a time he had gone out with the healers when they were summoned, and many a time there was little or nothing their herbs and tonics and touches could do for the dying. At those times it was what he could do for the grieving survivors that mattered most. Her hands rose like talons to clutch at the neck of her gown, and her mouth contorted as if with pain. He felt a welling of genuine sympathy for the woman. Oh, grandmother, he sighed and reached towards her. But as he stepped forward to embrace her, and with a touch draw off some of her grief, she stepped away. She patted at him with hands that all but pushed him away. No, no, I'm fine, dear. Don't let Grandma upset you. You just go get your things so you're ready to go when we are. Then shut the door in his face. For a time he stood staring at it in disbelief. When he did step back from it, he found Malta and Selden regarding him. So, one... One little thing in there, we get a brief mention of drawing grief away, which we see is like a skill of his later on. Yes. Not really touched on too much, but this is a little peek into it for the first time. Yes. It kind of makes me think of maybe a wit ability, like how Burek can heal people a little bit more. I wonder if this is similar in that vein and has something to do with that branch of the magics. Uh, I feel like it's still skill, in my mind at least, because Wintro doesn't show any other signs of being witted, I don't think. And to me, this could definitely just be not so much as him taking the grief, but like soothing or maybe taking their memories of something or like, you know, almost like forging light. Right. <laughs> of like, it's reminiscent to me of Verity taking Fitz's anger. And Fitz just feeling empty, but like a much more gradual and less forceful and just like a natural way of doing it. Right. I guess. Did Verity take Fitz's anger in a way that wasn't connected to the stone dragon? Like, could he have done that without the stone dragon? I don't know. Maybe he just didn't know how. And I mean, we, we've already noted that Saz priest's skill is much different in use than anybody else that we've seen creating art and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I guess I just, I don't remember anything about Wintro having the wit or anything like that. So I'm kind of, well, I do wonder if avoid that. If like the wit, if you're not exposed to animals, (laughs) maybe like, I guess he rode horses. So maybe he would have been, I get, yeah, maybe he doesn't have the wit. Maybe it is more skill-based. We don't see him, like, turn around before somebody enters the room until he's connected with Vivacia and, like, 
Right. You feel everyone through Vivacia anyway. So like, I, I just don't see anything with it. I'll keep, definitely keep my eye out for it. Cause it's an interesting theory. If he does have something leaning towards that. Yeah. It could be related just for right now. I think it's closer to still like mind manipulation. With right. The skill. Hmm. I don't know. Hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Either way. He does have something, some sort of ability. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And Ronica denies his comfort, his hug, probably because one, Althea's like, Ronica Vestrit was never one for touchy feely things or right. weeping on shoulders. But two, also, he is a child. Yes. Like, you can't. <laughs> this uh, is the grandmother to the child. Oh, no, don't comfort me. I'm comforting you yes. guys. Yeah. And I think, too, it's good to keep in mind that everybody grieves differently. And yeah. some people don't like grieving with others they don't like other it feels like a weakness you wouldn't want somebody to see you weak and i assume someone like ronica vestrit who is all about image who has been conscious of image her whole life as an old trader would absolutely loathe a situation in which she would have to get comfort from anyone let alone her grandson right and his disbelief is understandable because I'm sure in every other situation he's been in, people are more willing. They understand what a priest can do to take away the grief. Um, But she didn't know that's what he was going to do. Right. And also he is a kid and she's an adult. And sometimes it's just really hard. You can't, adults aren't really supposed to grieve to children. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's not fair to the kids. No. And so that's a pretty healthy boundary that she's keeping there to say, you're my grandson. I'm comforting you. In all fairness, Wintro is, you know, more reflective. He has been trained to do things like this. Yeah. Yeah. But still healthy boundary, Ronica. Good job. Yes. Yeah. Good on her. Of course is hurt by it. And he has a desperation in him to try to feel some kinship with his family. So he reached out to Malta and Selden. Right. Try to connect with them a little bit. Right. And I think, I think this goes to show why this isn't his feeling of ostracization isn't necessarily on the family. I think it's not all on the family. No, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) It's like partially him too. It's, they kind of speak different languages in what their need is to feel loved, what their love languages are. Mm -hmm. And he is too young to understand that that isn't anything to do with him. This isn't a lack of love on their end. It's just a lack of being able to communicate that in a way he would understand. Yeah. And so, yeah, that just comes with age. He says then in a desperation, he did not quite understand himself He reached after some feeling of kinship with his siblings. He met their gazes openly. Our grandfather is dying, he said solemnly. He's been doing it all summer, Malta replied disdainfully. She shook her head over Wintrow's witlessness, then dismissed him by turning away. Come, Selden, I'll ask Nana to pack our things. Without a glance, she led the boy off and left Wintrow standing there. Briefly, he tried to tell himself he should not feel hurt. His parents had not meant to diminish him by their exclusion of him, and his sister was under the stress of grief. Then he recognized the lie and turned to embrace what he felt and thus understand it. His mother and grandmother were preoccupied. His father and his sister had both deliberately attempted to wound him, and he had let them su- succeed. But these things that had happened, and these feelings that he now experienced, were not faults to be conquered. He could not deny the feelings nor should he try to change them. Accept and grow, he reminded himself, and felt the pain ease. 
Wintrow went to pack a change of clothes. Very mature for his age, but still, like, there's still a tinge here of, like, this is just a kid. Yeah. He's a tween. He's, like, 14 here, right? I think he's just a year older than Malta. So so I think he's 13. 13. Yeah. Maybe almost 14. Yeah. So it just, there's definitely those hints of childishness. But I also think it's kind of a good representation of um, why it's nice to have building blocks uh, for like mental health purposes. Oh, yeah, definitely. This recognizing like I actually like these things were bad and it does hurt my feelings. But um, that doesn't mean that I need to be better or that like this is something that I have to fight off like feeling feelings is normal and I can only grow from this I can't change how I felt or how I reacted I can only go forward Mm -hmm. and that's a really healthy outlook to have that's a really nice thing to do and I think it's good that he has that to stand back on and if he were a bit older he could potentially have handled this situation a little bit differently. Um, but he isn't, and this is where he's at. And I think it's really good that he had the upbringing of being in the, the priesthood. Yes. The priesthood to give him that insight of actually as much as my family seems to think feelings don't matter, they do matter and it's okay to feel them. (laughs) But also he is struggling. He is having these, hard thoughts it is hard to deal with this also like a 13 year old confronting yes my sister and my father meant to be hurtful to me yes when i was sent away by my father yeah and <laughs> or was it by kefria i can't remember i think kefria had promised him to saw and oh, then yeah, she, yeah, that's if right. selden would have lived and then wintrow oh my gosh no selden was the one who was sick so if selden lived wintrow oh. would be sent to saw um, as a priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, 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 Selden yeah. lived from whatever sickness he had. Mm-hmm. And then Kyle made her keep his, uh, keep her word, even though she didn't want to. Yeah. Which is a little weird, but I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit more to that, but um, either way. he did. We did also kind of skip over the little bit of conversation he overheard between his parents and grandmother. Yep, they don't want to talk to Efren about it. Right. They don't want to bring it up, which is the deal, which is the complaints that Kyle has about Althea and probably keeping Althea on the ship, even though Kyle's going to be the captain. All that sort of stuff. They don't want to bring up any mention of it. Right. And assume it's a done deal. And Ronica convinced him, leave it at that. Right. Well, I think I think what it is, is that Kyle has already kicked her off. That. There is no, because he Mm, probably would not want to go back on his word because he would think that would make him look like a bad captain, which kind of does, that he would be wishy-washy like that. I get it. But yeah, I think the part of it is just that he didn't want to go back on his word. And so he is going to try to argue it. And Ronica is like, we barely got him to agree to let you take over. If you talk to him now, he's not giving you the ship. Right. And Kyle seems to think he knows better, but is letting it go for now. So we switch over to Brashen. We get a point of view from him for the last couple pages of this chapter. And we intro into him staring down at Althea in disbelief because she's kind of in a trance, just hands and knees touching the the cabin floor. Um, I think kind of in dreams. 
Well, she's laying on the floor. Is she laying down? Yeah, like a heroine in a penny play. Oh, yeah, yeah. He he, uh, kneels by Althea. That's where I got the the kneel. (laughs) Yeah, no, she is on the ground looking passed out. (laughs) Instead, he found her sprawled on the floor of her cabin, looking for all the world like one of the fainting heroines of the penny theater play. instead of falling gracefully she's just kind of sprawled out there yeah with her hands on the wood gripping it tightly she was breathing which he checked which is a good thing (laughs) yeah so obviously she was grieving and then is like i need escape yes and went to vivacia and the memories yeah which i think is part of what makes drowning in the memory is so dangerous mm-hmm. um, because when something it's, hard happens, it would be really easy to just escape. You don't have to deal with it anymore because you're somebody else and it is not this time anymore. Definitely feel that. Yeah. There was like a super immersive, you know, put fantasy books in front of my mind. And I, I am the main character. Ooh, I would not read this book with that <laughs> or like any of the Fitz books with that, but it'd be fun. Yeah, no, it's, Definitely something that she does not realize is a problem, obviously. And Brashen has trouble waking her up. She's not really stirring, even though he's kind of like, hey, Mistress Althea, like, wake up. And he's kind of mad at her. He's glaring at her. He cannot believe she's behaving this way, essentially. Like, this is not the time for her to be dramatic. He goes in to talk about how fainting is so unlike her and just like it has been the last 17 days where she was moping about and that's not at all what he had expected of her yeah and he he's thinking like i should go to the ship's captain or the ship's doctor but both of us kind of share the quality that we don't want to you know go to anybody else for our problems right we don't want to be seen like this yeah and also like he knows that she doesn't want to be seen like that, and he does still doesn't like her paleness uh, and the bony look to her face. So he's desperately trying to wake her up, get her okay again. And event- eventually, she kind of rouses, but it's coming out of a dream, still talking as if she's in a dream or about those memories. And it kind of catches him off guard and... He almost smiles back at her at some words that she's saying and catches himself. And he's like, did you faint? Just bluntly trying to get to the point, get over with this kind of thing. And she snaps back to herself. And apparently it's with wariness in her eyes. I no, not exactly. I just couldn't stand. She let her words trail off as she pushed herself up from the bed. She staggered a step. But even as he reached for her arm, she steadied herself against a bulkhead. She gazed at the wall as if it presented some perfect view. And then she gets back to reality and... Have you you prepared a place for him? Right. And all of this weirdness from Althea, at least what's happening right now, Brashen is chalking up to grief that her father is dying. Yeah. That... It's understandable. Like the weird things happen. Obviously, she didn't know he was dying 17 days ago, but right now she's extra weird and it has to be the grief. And so he tries to comfort her by saying, you know, I grieve with you. He was important to me. And she gets really mad about this. So and he's says, not dead yet. Yeah, he isn't dead yet. 
she kind of just smooths over her face with her hands, saying like, oh, I'm, I'm good now, and storms out the door and leaves him there. And he thinks it's like... That's typical Althea. Yeah. She had no concept that any other person beside herself truly existed. She had dismissed his pain at what was happening as if he had offered the words out of idle courtesy. He wondered if she had ever stopped to think at all what her father's death meant to him or any of the crew. No, of course she couldn't. Yeah, uh, he kind of goes in here what I was talking about before earlier in this episode about how fair and even-handed Efren Vestret was and what a rarity that is for a ship captain and, and kind of says, like, Althea wouldn't know that either, like, that right. he was a fair and, and a wonderful captain. And that it's rare. And it is rare, And yeah. not only is he a good captain, but the food is safe to eat and it is good food and they are paid well and there's no fear of aging out. <laughs> yeah. Their Captain Vestrit will always value your knowledge. And he sympathizes that it's probably because she she's only ever known her father's captaining. She hasn't been on any other vessels to know that this isn't the norm. Yeah, and now he says he had entrusted his ship to them, meaning the crew, and they had entrusted their futures to him. Now that Vivacia was about to become hers, he hoped to saw she'd have the morals and the sense to keep the crew on and do the right by them. A lot of the older hands had no home save the Vivacia. Ration was one of them. So he, here he is basically thinking, Efren was amazing. We're probably not going to see his like again. I wonder what Althea's going to do. Because in his mind too, yeah, the ship's going to Althea. Right. So this kind of rug pull that's going to happen in this next chapter, or the next couple chapters, is quite a shock for everybody. Right. So. It is a big change in what everyone expects to happen. But it is really interesting to see Brashin talk about Althea's shortcomings and that she is really self-centered. And it's yeah. not necessarily her fault that she doesn't understand the depth of the kindness that Efren Vestrit is. And we do get a really good look at Efren Vestrit, the captain, and he is a wonderful person when it comes to being a captain. I mean, the fact that he is giving people livable wages and good food and trusts them and is handpicking them and isn't using violence. Like that's huge. And I think it does, like I said a little bit earlier, it does kind of like make me backtrack a little. He's obviously not a bad person. Um, because a bad person wouldn't be able to treat so many people this well. But it is something that Althea clearly has not picked up on. Right. This love of the crew, this trust in the crew to do their job. Well, she she picks up on it, but she takes it for granted. She yes. thinks that's just kind of like a normal thing because she has that for her father. It's like, oh yeah, duh. Right. Like she knows the crew will get the job done, but it's yeah. not because... Of any, she doesn't understand that it's because of the loyalty they have to her father. To her, that's just how all crews should be. Right. You, that's just how crews act, and it's nothing that she needs to facilitate or mm -hmm. make them feel yeah. in some way towards her to act that way too. I don't know. Althea's well, got another thing coming in the future. On the honey, that you've got a big storm coming. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you have any questions for us, any thoughts, any theories, please let us know. You can reach us at isfitshappy at gmail.com with any emails that you might have, or you can leave messages or comments for us on any of our social medias. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. We have a Reddit username, and we're all isfitshappy at all three of those, all four of those that I, <laughs> that I listed. So thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah. So now we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the stuff you guys have brought to our attention. Uh, first and foremost, I think, Luke, you have an apology to make for uh, pronunciation. <laughs> Not necessarily an apology, but definitely no. a change. Um, I said ergot yes. as the, the pirate in the, probably the past couple episodes, whenever I mentioned him. A couple people have, have chimed in and told me that it is not spelled that way. Uh, <laughs> I am aware of that now. <laughs> yes. I've read the series probably three times fully, but every single time I just kind of like, first time I read it, I thought it was I-R-G-O-T. So it kind of stuck in my mind. It breezed over the name and it's Ergot. Um, <laughs> but we'll probably call him like Igrit or something like I Igrot. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, neither of us listen to the audiobooks ever. Well, and the audiobooks apparently like change up. Yes. The so, pronunciation too. So we don't even have that baseline of like, oh, here's a better way to say it. We're just kind of going off of whatever feels right to us. Um, yeah. I definitely just didn't even think anything of it because we weren't like reading the name of the captain yeah. in front of us so i just didn't i was like yep that sounds right it's close enough <laughs> um but yeah we'll try to be better about that i grit yeah i i grit i grit i grit is easier to say but it definitely is not probably how it should be pronounced the o my, should not have an is sound probably in that in my head it's ergot just sounds way better ergot i don't does know sound nice i like the way it sounds so but it is incorrect Yes. yes so, so thank you for everybody who pointed it out. We will try to be better about that one. Yeah. <laughs> I know we started this whole podcast saying we are going to like decide how we pronounce things. We're going to stick to it. But that one actually was like not thought of because we weren't it, it was, wasn't written down ever. <laughs> no. Yeah. We, <laughs> we were just trying to remember the name. And so therefore got it wrong. That is one that we will concede we were wrong about and change. So thank you <laughs> for bringing that to our attention. A lot of comments about Emma's question that she wrote down about who would be a better king, Kennet or Regal. All of them said Kennet. Yeah, not even a single person thought Regal would be a better king. And I specifically, I, I tried to make it a little bit more even because I also feel like Kennet's a better king. And say like during peacetime for Regal, um, because I feel like that would give him a better a, a better advantage. Because when there isn't people actively being murdered in his kingdom... Maybe he would be seen as a better king, but yeah, no, ultimately he does things for his own self-interest. Yeah. Whereas Kenneth, even though it is kind of the same, at least it's for the betterment of other people to make him be seen as better. Right. Yeah. It's usually, usually his ideas involve some sort of advancement or even handedness across most people yeah no it does seem he so. he actually has the people's interest in mind when ruling which he, he actually has experience in leading as well so. oh that's true yeah that's that's fair <laughs> so yeah kenneth was the overwhelming winner of that conversation <laughs>
We also got some replies to, I believe it was last week when we talked about how we weren't sure if dragons mm, yeah. could change color from their serpent form. Um, and we got two separate answers, each on different sides of the argument. Yeah. One from Amir that says that their opinion is that they cannot change and that, um, let me see, what was it? Uh, Sintara, I believe, is surprised that she is blue, but that's because she had no memory of being a serpent at all. Right. When, so not really a definitive answer, but Amir's definitely on the side of they do not change. And uh, we have an email from Bastion that says that it's kind of canon that they change. And I, I don't remember this at all because I don't, I, I mean, I've admitted it before. Rainwild Chronicles is not my favorite of, of the books. So a lot of those details are hazy for me. Right. But apparently um, Malkin, the serpent, who definitely is 100% confirmed or at least probably 99% confirmed turning into Murkor the dragon, is blue with golden false eyes. And when Murkor is the dragon, he is gold with blue false eyes. So the colors kind of swap there. And then Bastion also mentioned something about Sintara being green as a serpent and then blue with a secondary color green as a dragon, which I don't, I I feel more on a mere side for the Sintara thing because I remember Sintara having a lot of memory issues. Right. But I don't remember if she ever gains them back and we learn or if that's just uh, assumptions again on right. which which serpents change into dragons. But the Murkor thing and the Malkin thing is very interesting because yeah. those are pretty much, in my mind at least, confirmed that they are serpent and dragon, yes. um, the same same being. So I don't know. I, I kind of fall like halfway between both of them. Yeah. <laughs> like it can change or it can flip, but it's not going to be... It seems to be the example that we get isn't drastically different. It maybe just swaps color schemes or what is the primary color. Right. I don't know. It's no. A, it's, it's still an interesting conversation. Yeah, it is definitely an interesting thought to have. I I don't know. I still think it would be cooler if they do get to change colors in the cocoon. <laughs> um, but that is just a personal preference thing, not like because of something I read. More just my own idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to get takes from every side. Still going to be looking at, we'll look out. Obviously, we can't do any, you know, any uh, definite comparisons or anything yeah. right now because we're not in that trilogy, but yeah. So, or the quadrology. Yes. <laughs> so we'll have to wait on that one. Um, so I'm like a little impatient to get there now, but eventually we'll, I'm sure, get to it and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. There's also a couple more comments from Amir and from Bastion both about Kennet in general. Yes. They both have different kind of topics here. So Amir's is mostly about how Kennet and Fitz are very similar characters. Yes. And there are some just, you know, Amir just kind of brushes the surface of it. And I'm kind of hearing if anybody else will will chime in of what their thoughts are on this, of the similar, you know, up upbringings of having a nice life and then being thrust into something that is dangerous and terrible for them and, and traumatic having uh being forged early on in their lives 
but then diverging a little bit where Fitz has a companion, a wit companion with him by his side all the time when Kenneth has to be separated from Paragon, who he has bonded with for most of his life. And for Fitz to get his uh, forged emotions and memories back eventually when Kenneth only does that when he's dying, like there are similarities with them growing up and they kind of parallel in, in so many ways and then diverge in so many key points too. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see if anybody else has any thoughts about this or, you know, any, any theories or connections that they see between the two characters. Yeah. It is really interesting to think about all their similarities and how, in this, Kenneth is kind of the villain, whereas Fitz is the hero. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons for that. That's like a very simple uh, way to put it. Um, yeah, there yeah. are definite reasons. But it is really interesting just to see how they are really similar. They're kind of foils of each other. And I don't know. I, I think it'll be fun to keep track of Kenneth as we're going on to like see his just attributes and how he acts and what he does. And then to turn around and get to watch Fitz, who will be a similar age, I believe next time we see him in the, the similar ish uh, next trilogy. Yeah. The, um, the Tawny man trilogy. Yes. Excuse me. Um, I guess Fitz will be probably around 10 years younger. Yes. Because Amir also, we, we kind of talked about it last episode that Kenneth was probably in his early forties according to the internet when we looked it up. (laughs) And Amir kind of um, confirms that in his mind, at least. He says that he was about a tween uh, when Paragon sank, and then Paragon spent about 30 years down and then beached. So it kind of tracks that Kenneth is probably early to mid-40s, which I believe fits his 35 at the beginning of the Tony Man trilogy. Right. Um, But still, I feel like, a 10 year difference between 35 and 45 versus like 25 and 35 is <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a bit of a, uh, closer distance. Definitely. Um, definitely. But yeah, so we'll get to see, um, we'll have to like keep our eye out on that similarity. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that I mentioned that we would get to is yes. the rest of Bastion's email kind of talking about the differences between Kyle and Kenneth's captaining style, which we had commented on in the previous episode as well. It was just kind of writing in to discuss how uh, we were talking about kind of the brutality of Kyle's captaining style. And he went on to agree with us to an extent because the second mate, Torg, is the one who really like has it out for Wintrow. Right. You know, he he's kind of jealous of the attentions and also very brutal person in general. But Bastion likes Gantry and because Gantry seems more neutral to well-meaning or mannered towards Wintrow and was kind of sad even when Gantry does end up uh, dying and getting killed. Right. I believe probably by Kennet <laughs> or like that attack. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't I would, remember yeah, that either. Probably. But, yeah, probably. So that that's like kind of different than what we were talking about this episode specifically because we were saying like, oh yeah, he's Kyle's hand-picked mate. He's got to yeah. be brutal and stupid and hates women and things like that, right? Right. Which, now that I'm thinking about it, now that Bastion brings it up, Torg is kind of like the main villain that Wintrow faces. It's like him and Kyle. So... Right. 
I just don't remember much of Gantry in the later books at all. Yeah, I don't. Later in this book. Obviously, it's a little hard because right now all we've seen of Gantry, which is freshest in our minds, is him being a jerk to Althea. Um, And I feel as though he might be nice to Wintro simply because it is the son of a man he respects. And even like, I don't know, I think. And okay, so. Sorry, sorry for cutting you off. Go continue on. I was just going to say something else. Continue on. Okay, I was going to say, I think that the way Gantry treats Althea is indicative and even how he treats Brashen is indicative of how he is as a person to other people in general. Or how Kyle acts as well. Could be just a reflection of his captain. Definitely. And while he may be like the lesser of three evils, um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that it, like, I don't think that I see him as someone who is a good person. Maybe that will change. Obviously, like, like I said, the most fresh. I mean, we all know your standards are very high for good people. So. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm sorry. I have taken it back this episode. <laughs> you can have your stances. You I know? know, I know. I it's I great. still don't love Efren. I like. I, yeah, but you like villains, and in your mind, Efren's such not, a. <laughs> he's not a villain. He's just not a good person in my mind, and he's like a good person in some of the ways. Just like yeah, I know, maybe I know. in the way he treats women, he is a bad person. <laughs> um, but he's still better than most people, so I guess whatever. Um, ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that I personally feel as though Gantry is just the lesser of evil of a few evils, and is still not necessarily a good person. I am open to changing my mind as we continue to reading him. Mm-hmm. Like Luke said, I don't really have a huge memory of how he is the rest of the time. Bastion says that he's pretty much the only one who takes a non-antagonistic role with Wintrow. So right. I, I am interested to see in what we view him as through Wintrow's eyes. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. And what I was going to say is... I mean, we can't say that Kyle makes the worst decisions in everything. Yeah. We've already given a thing. He could have picked a great first mate. Gantry could be, you know, the next Brashen, you know? Right. Obviously, there are differences in the way he views things, and mates are usually reflections of your captain. But, I mean, he could be good. Right. We might, you know? It, it is really hard because there is a lot going on that would make him seem worse than he is. Like, obviously, there's power struggles going on. Um, there are good reasons why he wouldn't like Althea besides the fact that she's a woman. Like, there, she is kind of spoiled and entitled and rude. So I get why he would yeah. feel the need to be rude back. And, like... Every single view we get is going to be skewed in some way because they have their own biases, which is like kind of fun knowing that all of our reader, all of the people that we're reading through will have some skewed version of a lens. We just have to kind of try to find the cracks in the lens to see what lines up the most. And I I don't know. I just find that really fun to do. And uh, I'm excited to see if I change my mind about him. Maybe I'll like him more by the end. I might shed a tear for his death. But yeah, so thank you for everybody for reaching out. As always, we enjoy hearing from you and getting your points of view. We love being told when we're wrong uh, so that we can fix it in the future. So thank you for everybody for reaching out. And I hope that we have more to talk about next week. 